Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 5, Episode 4. In the last episode, I summarized the book of Numbers, chapters 21 through 24, which included much of the history of the 40 years of wandering. This week, I work my way through the balance of the book, wrapping up these few summary episodes. And with that, let's get started. Numbers chapter 25 kicks off with a cautionary tale, a true cautionary tale. And of course, there's a backstory. While the Israelites were encamped at Shittim, the men got to know the Moabite women, but it didn't stop there. The Israelites began to worship the Moabite deities. And you know what the consequences of this was. God was mad. No surprise there. What's next? God tells Moses how to deal with this betrayal. Specifically, in quoting, he told Moses to take all the chiefs of the people and impale them in the sun before the Lord, in order that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Moses didn't shy away ordering the judges of Israel to kill any of the people who have yoked themselves to the Moabite deity Baal of Peir. Then the cautionary tale took the usual turn, focusing on a specific person, this time an Israelite man who brought a Midianite woman into his family, all within sight of everyone in Israel, including Moses. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the high priest, decided to take the situation into his own hands. Literally, he grabbed a spear and impaled them both through their abdomens, just as God had ordered. He impaled the man and the Midianite woman in the man's tent. And that was apparently the end of that, but at the cost of 24,000 Israelites, a steep price to pay for disobedience. Phineas's actions impressed God so much that he did two things. First, he agreed to spare the Israelites his wrath over their worship of the Moabite deities. And second, God granted Phineas and his descendants perpetual priesthood in Israel. The chapter ends with God directing Moses to attack and defeat the Midianites, likely to prevent another such straying. Chapter 26 begins with a new census. We're still in numbers, and this is your every so often reminder of the naming of the book. This census was for men aged 20 and up, able to take part in the military, to be sorted by tribe, were then given an accounting of the number, the exact number, no rounding here, all laid out in close to a thousand words tribe by tribe, house by house, with a grand total of 601,730, all ready to fight. But that wasn't the only reason for the census. The larger tribes were to receive more land, and the smaller tribes less, except for the priestly Levites. As priests, they were to be allotted no land and would have to subside on the offerings at the temple. More on how the Levite allotment worked in a minute. And that's it for chapter 26. 
the assignment of land didn't end in chapter 26, as 27 presents a unique case involving an inheritance for daughters who had no brothers. And this is a case that's best explained in the text, quoting, The daughters of Zulafahad came forward. Zulafahad was the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, son of Joseph, a member of the Manassehite clans. The names of his daughters were, actually, I'll spare you my mispronunciation. The daughters stood before Moses, Eliezer the priest, the leaders, and all of the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they said, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died for his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad are right in what they are saying. You shall indeed let them possess an inheritance among their father's brothers, and pass the inheritance of their father on to them. You shall also say to the Israelites, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall pass his inheritance on to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. There's actually more to how inheritance worked, but you should get the point. Do notice that the only women with a claim of inheritance are the deceased man's daughters. After that, a male heir must be found. Then the chapter takes a turn. God instructs Moses to ascend a mountain in the Arbarim mountain range. From there, he will be able to see the land the Israelites will be led to. He's told that after he sees the land, he will die, and is given the reason. Specifically, in quoting the New Revised Standard, God tells him it's because he rebelled against God's word in the wilderness of Zen, when the congregation quarreled with God. God tells Moses that Moses did not show God's holiness before their eyes at the waters. End quote. Then, still in the text, we're parenthetically told that the waters referred to are the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zen. Moses takes it in stride and tells God he'll need to appoint a leader over the people. God doesn't hesitate in naming Joshua, to the point that God tells Moses to go ahead and give him some of his authority so that all the congregation of the Israelites may obey. Thinking back to the episodes on Egyptian history, this is very similar to when the Egyptians named the next in line as a co-regent. Then, a bit of an unexpected twist, which is kind of how twists go. God tells Moses to have Joshua stand before the high priest Eliezer, who shall inquire for him by the decision of the Urim before the Lord. Remember that the Urim was one of the stones attached to the high priest's breastplate, an essential part of his vestments. And we're not told what the verdict of the stone was, but given that Joshua became the heir apparent, 
it's assumed to have been favorable. And that's it for chapter 27. Chapter 28 begins with God giving Moses further instructions concerning offerings. Two unblemished year-old male lambs every day, one in the morning and the other at twilight, along with flour, oil, and a drink offering. But not just any drink offering, a strong drink. And that adjective is from the text. Then, an extra offering on the Sabbath, and even more on the first of the month. There are additional instructions concerning sacrifices at Passover and the Festival of Weeks. These directives continue into chapter 29, where the focus is on the other mandated festivals, the Festival of Trumpets, offerings on the Day of Atonement, and the Festival of Booths. It's for this last one, the Booths, where they were given day-by-day instructions on what to offer and sacrifice. After God gave Moses these instructions, he relayed them to all of the people. Next, we get the rules around oaths and vows made by the people. For men, it was straightforward. If a man made a vow to God or swore an oath, he didn't break it and was required to do whatever it was that he promised. For women, though, the rules were more complicated. If she lives in her father's house, and dad either approves or says nothing, then the woman is held to her vow. But if her father disapproves, then it's as if she had never made the vow. The same logic holds after she marries, but switches from her father to her husband. And the disapproval must be nearly immediately after he hears of the vow. Otherwise, it stands, and in some cases, the husband may have to bear his wife's guilt. If she's widowed or divorced, then she needs no man's approval. Nothing is said about what happens if she is unmarried and her father is deceased. Next is chapter 31, and gets us back to some of the history and numbers, specifically their conflict with Midian. God tells Moses to attack the Midianites, and after that, he will die. Moses then orders 1,000 men from each tribe to assemble and attack. They are sent into battle along with the high priest Eleazar, who brought with him the vessels of the sanctuary and the trumpets for sounding the alarm. It's assumed that the vessels included the Ark of the Covenant, and it worked, with the Israelites killing the five kings of Midian. They also killed the diviner Balaam, the same one who had told Balak the Israelites were a blessed people, and had the talking donkey. We'll find out why Balaam was killed later in the narrative. With their victory, the Israelites took the women and children of Midian captive. They also captured all their cattle, flocks, and their goods as spoils of war. But they weren't done. The Midianite towns and camps were razed and burned, and the fighting force returned with everything to their own camp, this time located on the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. When the men returned with the Midianite women as prisoners, Moses was outraged and gives us the reason for Balaam's execution. In his own words, Have you allowed all the women to live These women here, 
On Balaam's advice, made the Israelites act treacherously against the Lord in the affair of Peor, so that the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Now therefore, kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman who has known a man by sleeping with him. But all the young girls who have not known a man by sleeping with him, keep alive for yourselves. Camp outside the camp seven days. Whoever of you has killed any person or touched a corpse, purify yourselves and your captives on the third and on the seventh day. You shall purify every garment, every article of skin, everything made of goat's hair, and every article of wood. Among the many things we learn in this passage, Balaam's part in the Israelites' worshiping of the Canaanite deity is given as the reason for his death. Also, war in its aftermath in that place and time was unforgiving for everyone, including women and children. Eliezer then gives the men instructions for purifying the booty. Anything that can withstand the heat of fire will be passed through the flames, then washed. This specifically included gold, silver, bronze, iron, tin, and lead. Anything that could not withstand fire was simply washed with water. No specific items were listed. The fighting force was quarantined outside of the camp for seven days before they were considered clean. God then gives Moses instructions on how to divide up the captured property between the soldiers and the other Israelites, all having to give a portion to God. And, since its numbers were told the exact amounts of everything that was captured, 675,000 sheep, 72,000 oxen, 61,000 donkeys, and 32,000 persons in all, women who had not known a man by sleeping with him. Then there was the accounting for the material captured. All the gold totaled 16,750 shekels. The nearest conversion I could find for this is that it equated to about 421 pounds of gold. There's no even remotely exact way to convert the value. But, just for grins, at current prices, that's about 10 million U.S. dollars. No count was given for the other goods seized. In chapter 32, the Israelites set their sights on other regional kingdoms. In this case, the Reubenites and the Gadites were eyeing good grazing land. Why? Well, the text tells us that they owned many head of cattle. They asked Moses and Eleazar to allot them the prime grazing land that had already been captured, also relaying that they didn't want to cross the Jordan. Moses chastised them claiming that they were satisfied with the territory that was currently possessed and were not willing to help out the other tribes in capturing the remaining territory. The two families assured Moses that when the time came, they would fight with their brethren, no matter where the fight unfolded. Moses agrees to assign them the land, but warns them of the consequences of going back on their word. Good thing they had already heard the sermon on vows and promises. This is how the Gadites, the Reubenites, along with half of the tribe of Manasseh, came to live east of the Jordan. At the end of chapter 31, 
were given a list of all the towns these three tribes captured and rebuilt. I'll spare you the recitation. The pertinent ones will be covered in the future. Chapter 33 is yet another turn in the narrative, this time looking back on everything that had happened since the people left Egypt, from a slightly different perspective. All recorded by Moses. I'll quote the first part, as it's succinct enough and has a portion worth thinking about. After their release from Egyptian captivity, to quote the New Revised Standard, they set out from Ramses in the first month, on the fifteenth day of the first month. On the day after the Passover, the Israelites went out boldly in the sight of all the Egyptians, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them. The Lord executed judgments even against their gods. End quote. Theologically speaking, that last part, that the Lord executed judgments against their gods, is confounding. But it's also theological, and I don't do theological here. It may be worth exploring elsewhere. The narrative continues to tell us the next 28 or so places the Israelites camped before arriving at Mount Hor, where Aaron ascended and died. And in the sentence found after Aaron's death, we're told that he died in the 40th year after the Exodus, to be more exact, on the first day of the fifth month of the 40th year, and he was 123 years old. Without skipping a beat, the narrative switches right back to their history. This time, a Canaanite king, the king of Arad, located in the Negev desert, heard that the Israelites were heading his way. Then we switch again to all the stops the Israelites make along the way. Another ten or so places, eventually ending up in the plains of Moab, which makes sense, as that's where they were encamped when the narrative left off a few chapters ago. While they were encamped in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, God speaks to Moses again, telling him to relay another message to the people. This time, Instructions that when they cross the Jordan River and enter into Canaan, they are to drive out all of the inhabitants. Everyone. But that's not all. The Israelites were to also destroy all their figured stones, destroy all their cast images, and demolish all their high places. So, wipe out the remnants of their religion. Then they were to take possession of the land and divide it up among the families. This part of God's instructions wraps up with a warning concerning what will happen if they fail to drive out the Canaanites. At the end of the chapter, God tells Moses that if they do not drive out the inhabitants of the land before them, then those who they let remain shall be as barbs in their eyes and thorns in their sides. They shall trouble them in the land where they are settling. And God will do to the Israelites as he thought to do to them. Pretty dire indeed. Chapter 34 begins with God giving Moses the boundaries of the land they are to occupy. And this presents another list of places that I'll spare you for now, but we'll cover in this chapter of the podcast. God also tells Moses the names of the men who will lead each of the tribes as they settle in Canaan. 
And that's it for chapter 34. The beginning of chapter 35 tells us how the Levites came to gain their land, essentially towns within the boundaries of the other tribes, from the pre-existing wall of the towns and 2,000 cubits outward in all directions. And remembering that a cubit is about 18 inches or half a meter, this would mean that the land extended only for just over half a mile or a kilometer outside of the city walls. The land surrounding the walled cities was designated as the pastures for the Levites' livestock. In the next paragraph, we're told that there were 48 such towns given to the priestly tribe. Within this 48 were six so-called cities of refuge, three on each side of the Jordan River. I touched on these way back in the podcast, so a refresher is likely in order. These cities of refuge were pre-designated cities where a murderer, at least one who did not intend to kill, could flee after committing such a crime. If they managed to make it to such a place, then they would be afforded a trial before the congregation. If they didn't make it to the city, they would have to deal with the victim's family and friends. These cities were open to both Hebrews and outsiders. And then the rules got really specific. If the murderer killed with an iron object or stone or even a wooden object, then fleeing to the city was pointless. They were automatically considered a murderer and would be executed. But there's more to quote. If someone pushes another from hatred or hurls something at another, lying in wait, and death ensues, or an enmity strikes another with the hand, and death ensues. Then the one who struck the blow shall be put to death. That person is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when they meet. But if someone pushes another suddenly without enmity, or hurls any object without lying in wait, or while handling any stone that could cause death, unintentionally drops it on another, and death ensues. Though they were not enemies and no harm was intended, then the congregation shall judge between the slayer and the avenger of blood in accordance with these ordinances, and the congregation shall rescue the slayer from the avenger of blood. Then the congregation shall send the slayer back to the original city of refuge. The slayer shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. But if the slayer shall at any time go outside the bounds of the original city of refuge, and is found by the avenger of blood outside the bounds of the city of refuge, and is killed by the avenger, no blood guilt shall be incurred. For the slayer must remain in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the slayer may return home. End quote. There were more rules. Justice required the testimony of at least two witnesses, and, once adjudicated as guilty, the only acceptable punishment was death. Buying your way out of the sentence was explicitly prohibited, and, even if found not guilty, the person couldn't buy their way out of living in the city of refuge. They had to stay until the death of the high priest. It was certainly a bit different from the structure of our justice system. And that's it for chapter 35, which gets me to the last chapter in Numbers. 
And this final part deals with a particular nuance where the allocation of land collided with allowing the daughters of a sonless man to inherit property. One particular man from Manasseh had no sons, so a portion of that tribe's land was to go to his living daughters. But those daughters in the future could marry into another unnamed tribe. And the elders were concerned with the tribe losing a portion of their allotment to their seeming rival. Moses issued a new rule that required the daughters in such a situation to only marry within their own tribe so that no land would be lost. And it was implied that if she did marry outside the tribe, then she would have no inheritance. And that's it for the book of Numbers. Join me next week when I'll begin working my way through the many topics uncovered in the narrative. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others define the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.